The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I will be your host, joined as well by senior writer James Fox. You're joined by a guest from the SEC Network as well as ESPN, Kyle Peterson. Kyle Peterson, a former big league first-round draft pick, a pitcher within the Milwaukee Brewers organization as he joins us. We want to talk a lot, Kyle, today about specifically the Major League Baseball draft as it's approaching on June 10th, but also a lot of these questions regarding the Major League Baseball owners and the Players Association, the negotiations, focusing on what could be a 2020 Major League Baseball season. You could follow Kyle on Twitter at KP underscore Omaha. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us on the Future Sox podcast. All right, guys. I'm going to talk to you. So let me ask you this question. How are you doing? Obviously, you know, baseball hasn't stopped. Sports are trying to get back. And and with that being said, how are you trying to take this time to get ready and prepare for the Major League Baseball draft, given everything that's that's influenced our work these days? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've um, we've all gotten familiar with a Zoom call, which I think, oh, I don't know, 10 weeks ago, I probably didn't know what that was. And now I feel like I've got 10 or 15 of them a week. Um, but that's our new reality right now. That's all we can do. So, you know, the draft has been fun just getting to this point. We didn't know whether we were going to do it at all from an ESPN standpoint. Historically, I know years ago we did it, but we haven't done it in a long time. Um, and when it was it was originally supposed to be in Omaha this year, leading into the College World Series, so we were going to do it then. Um, but clearly, plenty has changed in our world since then. So it's fun, man. It's exciting. I think we can present it maybe a little bit different way than it's been presented in the past. And, and admittedly, it's a very different draft this year, but still um, it's a, it's a chance for guys to hear their name on a big stage. And it's huge. So Kyle, you mentioned a little bit about that major league baseball draft, and I want to get to that in a little bit. Uh, but first let me, let me start with the focus on these negotiations between the players association, as well as the owners. I mean, you were a former player, so you kind of were, a part of this union, the players union. And I, I'm just curious as we stand today on June 2nd, it seems like the two sides are, are coming a little bit closer together in, in finding common ground, trying to get this thing going uh, again in 2020 in an abbreviated sense. What are your general thoughts now as these talks continue? 
Yeah, I think it's tough. I mean, I, I'd be shocked if it doesn't get done. Um, I, I just think there's too much to lose on both sides if you don't get it done. But I think the underlying reality is, is neither side trusts the other side. And when you have a negotiation to where neither side trusts the other side, it's not going to be a quick negotiation. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, so regardless of, of, I think the mass is looking at it and saying, well, I mean, you know, it's millionaires and billionaires arguing against each other, like figure it out. I, I understand that. But the reality is, is if the owners just opened the books and said, listen, here's the numbers. This is exactly what it is. It'd be a short negotiation. I can somewhat understand why they wouldn't do that, but um, that would solve this and it'd solve it really quick because everybody could look at it and see what everybody's playing with. And I think you go back and say, all right, this is what we think is equitable and fair given the situation. And I think it's a lot quicker, um, a lot quicker discussion, discussion, but that's, that's not going to happen. It hasn't happened historically. It's not going to happen now, which means it's going to take us longer to, to ultimately get to an agreement. I would be, I'd be floored if we don't get there, um, but I think there's going to be some fireworks along the way, and I think it's a pretty good indication of what's going to happen as we get closer to the current CBA running out. Kyle, minor leaguers are in the news right now, you know, for some of the wrong reasons, and it's unfortunate to see the short-sighted nature of what clubs are doing in regards to the minor leagues. How much will releasing, you know, probably roughly 1,000 players and getting rid of 42 affiliates in the future hurt the game in the long term? Well, I don't... I don't know that it hurts the major league game all that much. Um, I think it hurts the game as a whole across the country significantly because there's, you know, 40 some communities that aren't going to have professional baseball in their community anymore, at least not in the sense that they had it before. So that sucks because, um, you know, like minor league baseball is Norman Rockwell. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny when you play minor league baseball, you realize after about a week and a half that there just happens to be a game. Like everything else is the important stuff. It's the bobbleheads and the giveaway and the like, you know, is it who is what act is at the game and are there fireworks afterwards? And it slaps your ego pretty quick because you realize that they're not necessarily there to see you. They're there to see the experience. And that's the hardest part about it is, is there's a lot of people that are going to miss out on an experience and a, a real, true entertainment option in our country. Um, and that part stinks. Clearly, it affects a lot of guys, too. Um, it, it, I hate the fact that um, there are less that within a system right now will at least theoretically have a chance to play in the big leagues. I think the baseball reality of it is you know, there's very few of those that would have ultimately played in the major leagues. Um, but it's it's just a sign of the times that we're in right now. And, and I think it's interesting that the decision to cut minor league teams was made before we got into COVID and, and just the, the economic reality that our country is in right now. Um, but now there's no turn it back. There's just not because there, there is more of an economic argument for it. Um, it's just unfortunate that those that many guys need to lose their job because of it. Yeah, so, I mean, we're going to get into the draft here in a minute, and obviously the draft's going to look a lot different. And with $20,000 uh, max bonuses on some of these undrafted guys, do, do you think a forward-thinking owner 
um, could benefit possibly from like increasing minor league pay, like across the board? Like, could they theoretically clean up per se, like an undrafted free agency in a year like this? If, you know, if that was like something that they were going to do, like from now on. Interesting thought. I mean, I, I don't like, what are the rules as opposed to what can you do individually or what is every team required to do as a group? If that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I think the Blue Jays like announced that they were going to do it last year. And obviously, look, it's like not that much. It's just like their per diem or whatever they were going to increase across the board. I think that's the only way to do it. They can't offer like individual guys anything. I just was wondering if, you know, oh, that's the organization that pays their guys more. Like maybe I'll sign there if the limit's $20,000. No, it could be. I, I, it's it's funny. I, I mean, I guess it's not funny, but it's it's a reality of this is to where, you know, when, when there's any... I guess significant upheaval in, in normal. Um, the reality is it, it gives you us all a chance to push the reset button on, on whatever we thought was normal before. And I, I think that's what we can do now. I think that's, that's what ownership can do now. That's what players can do now. That's what they're trying to do through the new CBA. And maybe this is an opportunity to do that. I mean, I put something out on Twitter the other day that, that there's like the minor league baseball needs a union. They just do. Because it is not a livable wage. I remember my first year in, in rookie ball. I, obviously, I was I was extremely fortunate. I was a first rounder, so I mean, what I was making on a monthly basis was not that wasn't how I was feeding myself. But for many, they are. This is twenty years ago, upwards. Um, I mean, our salary when we were in rookie ball was eight hundred and fifty dollars a month. In A ball, it was a thousand. In double A, it was fifteen hundred, and triple A, it was twenty one hundred, and they only pay you during the season. Um, that's pretty simple math to do. I think meal money was twenty bucks on the road, and the last time I checked, those numbers haven't moved a whole lot. Like, think about numbers that haven't moved a whole lot in the last twenty two years. There aren't too many. It is time. It is time that there's a unified voice. They don't. The point is, is is not for minor league guys to be making you know 100 grand, 200 grand, 300 grand a year all the way, but pay them enough to pay rent, pay enough to where if you really consider them as as potential legitimate prospects, that they can go work out in the off season, um, that they don't need another job immediately when the season ends. I mean, th- th- this is not this is better for the organizations long term. And I don't know that we'll get there, but I would love it if through this, the minor league system and the players look at it and say, you know what, it's time for us to unionize. And ultimately, you know, the, the MLB Players Association could be the one that drives it. And it doesn't need to be the same one. You can set up something different that works under an umbrella. But I would love if Tony did that right now. Not today, but I would love if Tony did that in the offseason because, you know, the reality is that the larger union – it represents those on the 40 man and those that aren't on the 40 man don't really benefit a whole lot. In many cases, they don't benefit at all until you get on the 40 man. The better of our game is to represent them all. And it would be great if, if we could come up with some situation that does that. I think you hit on a lot of really important topics there, Kyle. And I kind of wanted to follow up on that with, with this sort of question. We talk so much about the negotiations between the MLBPA and the owners and, I mean, back in March when they agreed to that initial deal that would pay their salaries through May, a lot of that was was going into consideration without even thinking about 
the undrafted players, right, the incoming draftees of this year, as well as, like you were mentioning, uh, a lot of these minor league talents. So with that being said, what is the results of these negotiations as it relates to minor league players and how they have to plan for their professional future as well as how it affects the minor well, league? Listen, I mean, there's, let's, let's start with the players. Um, there's a life reality to this, right? I mean, and the life reality is you got to pay your bills. Like some are married, some have kids. Um, I mean, whether you do or not, you still got to pay your bills. So there comes a time in everyone's, in, in most professional baseball players' lives. to where you got to look yourself in the mirror and go, okay, what the hell am I doing? I mean, does this continue to make sense? I think the heartbreaking part of this is that speeds up the what the hell am I doing moment for a lot of people right now. And I know they're getting 400 a month and, and I mean, David Price has, has paid all the guys with the Dodgers $1,000 for this month, I, I, which is really cool. Um, but the reality is it's still not a living wage, you know? I mean, 1600 bucks a month during the season? No, it, it doesn't. It just doesn't pencil. And then whenever the theoretical season ends, now what the hell do I do? So I think it, it it's it's only... It's only understandable that it speeds up a decision for a lot of guys to say, you know what, it's time to, to go get a real job. And that may be healthy. We all got to do it at some point. I remember the day I had to. And it sucked, but it's, it's a life reality. But this has, has sped up that potential decision process for a lot of different guys. From a minor league organization standpoint, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not in that game. And I can't imagine what it's like to be sitting there if you're a triple-A team or a double-A team or name your level of team, and you're not going to have a season. And you don't know exactly what it looks like moving forward. Because I think the, the one absolute through this is whatever we thought was normal before. And it doesn't matter if it's baseball, if it's life, if, if it's going to the grocery store. Whatever we thought was normal before, it ain't normal anymore. And it's not going to be. There's going to be a new set of normal rules when we get through this, and and minor league baseball is going to be no different. I just hope it ends with something that protects these guys more, because at this point, honestly, they have very very little protection. You made a well. You brought up the fact that these players, a lot of them, are going to have to come to a reality moment where, hey, is is this feasible financially? And I'd like to dive deep into that conversation in a little bit. But first, let's preview the draft here in 2025 rounds. Of course, it's going to be a unique situation. But we did learn that the draft will be on ESPN this year. Um, So it's good to have a platform, uh, another platform outside of just MLB Network. But uh, I'm curious how the draft is going to look like on ESPN and how how you'll be able to cover it. (laughs) It's going to look, uh, it's going to look like it's from a lot of different locations. I can tell you that. Um, Rav and Kyla McDaniel will be in Bristol. Eduardo will be in Miami. Berkey will be in Louisville. Uh, Mendoza will be in Bend, Oregon. Hassan will be in Kansas City. So just to start, like the logistical, the logistical gymnastics that go into a show that has, you know, whatever it is, seven, eight people in six or seven different locations is different. I mean, you know, when most of the time that we do a game or that you do a show, you're sitting next to whoever you're doing that game or show with. So if you want to talk, you bump them. I mean, it, it like there's a, it's easy to understand who is going next. 
in this case, it's going to be more of a challenge. So we've got a like a full dress rehearsal type deal on Monday just to go through a theoretical top 10 picks and say, OK, let's let's see how the, just this flows as, as we do it, because like so many things in all of our lives right now, this is new. We haven't done it this way. And obviously we haven't covered the draft in a long time, but it's been a blast. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm starting to, I'm learning the high school guys a little bit more. A lot of the college guys I've, I've, um, you know, I've obviously known fairly well up to this point, especially those that, that, that are, you know, first round guys, second round guys, just cause we've covered a lot of them, but, um, I'm fired up, man. I, I think we can present it in a way that is a little bit different, which is fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, and honestly, I mean, listen, I'm doing Korean baseball games from my basement at three o'clock in the morning at this point. Like, I, give me baseball. I don't. I don't really give a damn what it is, and I'm excited about it. And and this is something that I love following throughout the course of the year. Didn't get a chance to do it obviously this year at the college level, and and now it gives us a chance to revisit it some. So I I'm I'm excited. Yeah, Kyle. So drafts are typically pretty college heavy at the top. This year probably won't be much different. Who are who are some of your favorite players from this class? Well, I mean Torkelson is a different hitter. And I mean, it goes back to kind of the, the Chris Bryant and there's not a lot of Chris Bryant guys. We had to look at the last 20 years, just as far as the numbers they put up in college, but um, he's similar to that. And from that standpoint, it's, it's exciting to see a guy that you look at as, as a, you know, unless something crazy happens, like a massive impact bat at the next level. Um, I think he's more athletic than maybe has been written. He's a, he's a good defensive first baseman, which there has to be some value for that. Um, but offensively, it's, it's just a different sound. Austin Martin from Vanderbilt is, um, I mean, uber talented, like ability to recognize the strike zone as next level in this draft has some juice has played all over the place. I mean, you could put him in center, you could put him at short, you put him at second, you put him at third. Vanderbilt's done the last of those three. They haven't really put him in center much. Um, I don't know where he ends up, but I know that the bat plays for sure and the athleticism plays, and you can put him wherever you want. And then from an arm standpoint, Asa Lacey, the left-hander from AM, I saw him two years ago. We knew nothing about him. He came out of the bullpen. We were doing a game at AM, and you know, you get your list of six deep, seven deep, eight deep, and and Lacey was on there, but there wasn't a whole lot. And there's this, you know, I mean, not overly physically impressive at that time left-hander that rolls onto the mound. The first pitch is 97. And you go, oh, okay. So, you, I mean, you may not have talked to him about him, but this kid's a little bit different. And the following year, Rob Childers, the head coach of the AM, looked at me when we, were, when we had him one weekend and said, that's that's the best I've ever had. Um, he's really advanced. I mean, it's a lefty with mid to upper 90 stuff, a wipeout slider, a changeup that gets better. Um, competitive is all get out, like just everything you would want to see. Emerson Hancock from Georgia is another guy that is mentioned high. If you see him throw a bullpen, he looks like the, the number one pick in the draft. And he did for the first half of last year. Second half of last year, stuff changed a little bit, had a little bit of a lat injury, which slowed him down. First half of this year was fine, but not great. But when you've seen him right, he's as good as anybody. And, and you know, one kid that I really like is Kidney Max Meyer at, at, uh, at Minnesota, who is a little bit undersized, 6'1", not thick, 
played hockey in high school, um, throws a hundred, probably the best slider in the country. Like the fact that we're talking about college guys that throw a hundred and it's not college guy, it's multiple college guys just shows us how much the game has changed. But the, um, this year's college draft from a, a depth standpoint is as good as I can remember. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, that's some pretty good stuff on those guys there. One other thing I wanted to touch on, you cover um, the SEC too pretty exclusively. Two, two players that have been rumored to go in the area of where the White Sox select are Arkansas outfielder uh, Heston Kierstad and then Tennessee Southpaw Garrett uh, Crochet, I think is what yeah. it is. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about those two guys? Yeah, I mean, Kerstad is, um, I mean, a left-handed, legit power guy. Um, and not just power, he can really hit. He's a, he's a corner outfielder. You could probably move him to first base if you need to, but he's a corner outfielder. But he's a, he's a really pure hitter. And every year at Arkansas has got better. It is, I mean, it's top three or four just overall raw power in the draft. What I like about Kerstad is just the jumps he's made every year as far as stat standpoint, um, it just keeps getting better. And if you keep getting better, especially in that league, I think it lends itself to, to say, okay, well, he's, he's going to keep getting better when he gets into pro ball. But the, the immeasurables are there. He's a really good kid. He could flat hit. Um, the juice is real, and, and it's going to continue. Play for the national team. I mean, he's, he's got everything you want. The, the limitations are defensive. He's a corner outfielder. Um, he's good enough to play right, and he's done that a lot at Arkansas. But he's, I mean, he can never play center. He's not going to steal bags, but, man, he's going to hit, and he's going to hit from the left side. He's going to hit a lot of home runs. Um, Crochet's an interesting guy. I mean, left-handed. He's got a lot of bum garner in him. It is, there's a lot of deception. He also hit 99 in the fall. Like, it's real stuff. And he reminds me of Andrew Miller when I saw Miller at North Carolina 10, 12 years ago to where he's taller. He's like 6'4", 6'5", that low three-quarter slot. And if you're left-handed, it ain't comfortable. Like, nothing about it is comfortable. I'm not saying it's comfortable right-handed, but it's it's definitely not comfortable left-handed. Can be a wipeout slider. We've got a a side-by-side deal that we'll run on the draft that shows his slider and Bumgarner's slider. And the slot is very similar. The movement's very similar. I think the question with Crochet is, can he stick as a starter? There's not enough. Well, I wouldn't say enough. There's not a lot of history. He didn't throw a ton of innings in college. And because of that, I think the questions are, okay, is he a starter or potentially does he go to the bullpen? If he goes to the bullpen, he's a wipeout left-handed reliever. That, that can close if you wanted to, but he's, you know, he's, he's a seventh, eighth inning guy as fast as you want to get him there. If he can become a starter, he could be a top two guy in a rotation. I, I think that's the decision that organizations are going to have is do we see him as a starter long-term? And if we do, um, Crochet could bump up in the draft pretty quick. We at Future Sox are really excited about where the White Sox select in this draft at pick number 11. And, you know, from what, you mentioned a lot of those guys may fall. I mean, there's there's some flexibility here across the top 10. So I think the Sox are in a pretty good spot just to react as to how the board falls to where they stand. But somebody that I'd like to mention, and I'm not sure if he fits uh, in the slot around number 11, but we know that the White Sox at least checked in on this player. Uh, and that's right-handed pitcher out of Auburn, Tanner Burns. How would you evaluate Burns? Because we know that you know, command is his specialty. He's a little bit undersized for a pitcher, but he competed very well across his time in the SEC. 
You know, he's way safe. Um, he is, I mean, right-handed. I wouldn't say undersized, but not big. But the difference with Burns, and there's a few guys in the draft that are like this this year, um, is he's, he's pitched on the weekend in the SEC since he showed up. And there's not a lot of guys that do that. The other thing I like about Burns is he sat and watched Casey Mize for a year. So Mize would throw on Friday nights, who ended up being the first pick in the draft that year, the Tigers. And then ultimately, it was Burns pushed into that Friday night role last year and, and was that guy this year before the season got canceled. It's a mid-90s fastball. It's two breaking balls now. Um, both are, are good, and you could see as, as major league average at a minimum pitches. Change up is solid. He benefited because the last two years, I mean, he had Greg Olson around last year who, you know, was rookie of the year for the Orioles and pitching in big leagues for a long time. And then this year his pitching coach was Tim Hudson. So you go back-to-back years in college baseball and you got those guys around you, that's a big deal. I think he's way safe. I don't think – so if you take him and Crochet, I think Crochet's ultimate upside is, is, is more. And I think there's multiple guys that have more ultimate upside than Burns does. But I think you can push Burns through a system really quickly. And the stuff is plenty to be a major league starter for a long time. So really, I think some of it is, is whoever the organization is. Some of it is, is just, you know, what's your tolerance for risk? Crochet can show you stuff that there's honestly nobody else in the draft that can. Lacy stuff is different. The slot's different. But Crochet's a low three-quarter lefty that throws 99 with a wipeout slider, and he may be able to be a starter. Like, there's not that many humans in the world that exist that way. And if you get one of them, um, you know, you, you have one of five, six, seven of them in the world. So it's enticing. But the other is you got Burns where you go, man, it's clean and it's easy, and, and we know we can push him through the system, and we know ultimately he's going to get outs. And those are the days that I'm happy I'm not a major league GM because I, I think both will pitch in the big leagues for a long time. Upside for one might be better, but I don't think it's a wrong answer. I'd like to revisit that topic we, we talked about a little bit earlier related to the potential undrafted for agent future uh, related to the players in the 2020 draft. You know, we're looking forward not only to this season, of course, but next year as well. For next next year's college baseball season, we're wondering what the product is going to look like, and we're, we're thinking about the, the ideal scenario for players to decide whether it's feasible to, as a high school product, for example, to go to a, a, an NCAA school and sit there for three years as opposed to already being at the level of considered a draft prospect should the rounds have been up to 40 like in years past, uh, or you know deciding to go to a junior college route in order to, to – accelerate their pathway to professional baseball. I'm just curious your take on how you know colleges are going to handle those who return to school based on their eligibility as well as incoming freshmen and uh, those high school products. I mean, we're in the wild, wild west right now when it comes to the, the college game. Um, you know, we don't know exactly what the roster limit's going to be in scholarships, which is, is embarrassing, honestly, that we don't know that yet. But um, I think the absolute is the college game as a whole – so not Division One, but the college game as a whole is going to be better next year than it's ever been. It's not just next year; it's going to be better year for the or better for the next three or four years. There's no way around it. You got a five round draft this year with a twenty thousand dollar max on free agents. 
you got a rumored to be a 20 round draft next year. Lord knows there's going to be a max on free agents, which means this year and really moving forward. I don't think the draft is never going to go back to 40 rounds. I don't think it ever made sense at 40 rounds before. It definitely doesn't make sense now. So I think 20 is the new norm, but next year, there's going to be a ton more high school guys that go to college, wherever that college is at whatever level than would have gone before. Um, and clearly, it, you know, it, it creates a huge glut the following year and the following two or three years in the major league draft. The one that may benefit the most, well, they're all going to benefit, but junior college is going to benefit a ton. Because if I'm a fringy high school guy this year and I go into six, I theoretically would have gone six round, seventh round, but I wanted to sign. I may not want to go to school for three years. I may want to go to San Jack or Navarro or whatever. I mean, name your junior college and roll the dice for a year and either go, you know, if, if the draft works, sign, or if it doesn't go play a, a four-year college for a few years or go to junior college for two years and take a chance for two years in draft. Like, it, it – it's looked at differently this year because there's only five rounds. And if I'm a high school kid, there's no way in hell I'm signing for 20 grand. At least I would hope not. That, that's, that's a major league team's dream if they can get a high school kid to sign for 20 grand. Um, and I think in this case, it's massively detrimental to the kid. So I think the benefit in all of this is the college game. And the college game is going to be significantly stronger, hopefully in perpetuity, but definitely for the next three to four years. Um, and ultimately it's teams that have to look at the draft massively different. I think that we we've seen this more recently. I mean, look at the Mets draft last year, the Mets took three high school kids in the first three picks and the balance of the 10 rounds, they took college seniors because they could control cost. Things like that are going to happen more right now in the draft because historically it says your top two or three guys, I know there's outliers. I know there's plenty of incredible outliers. So I'm not downplaying those, but the numbers say those that are going to affect your major league team the most down the road are the guys you take in the first two or three rounds. So if you overpay to get those guys and ultimately you underpay for the rest of them, is that a better long-term solution? I have no idea, but I know we're going to see more teams try to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, it seems like mid-major programs could benefit a lot from this too, just yes. with like some guys transferring. And obviously, like I'm not privy to the transfer portal, obviously, but it, you know, it seems like I don't know. Like you, it's if, out there. You can see the whole transfer portal. Yeah, if if you uh, you know have talked to any of these coaches that just you know some of this, what are they going to have to deal with that they might not have otherwise? You know, just as far as like, look, I mean, you got a junior that might have went in the eighth round and got three hundred thousand. Now that guy might be back on your campus and you got three high schoolers coming in, you know, maybe that play similar positions. So have, have coaches really talked about that much yet? Just like with some of the ramifications for that. A stuff ton, but the challenge is they don't know yet because they don't know what the rules are. And that's my yeah. point is I, I think that like, we got to figure this stuff out soon. Um, we got a draft in a week and we get a signing date that I think is August 1st, but it's, it's relatively close to that. And we haven't told college coaches, here's what your rules are. Like, we already told you the seniors can come back. That's really cool. We haven't told you all of the scholarship ramifications. Do you have the ability to carry more than 35 guys, which is the rule right now? Um, do you have to keep 27 guys on scholarship, which is the rule right now? Like, there's, there's all these different things, and it's unfair. 
because the problem is, is college coaches, and this is 100% unavoidable, are going to have every year they have uncomfortable conversations. They're going to have a lot more of them this year. There's no way around it. I mean, if you, you could not have foreseen what happened and name your power program, when you go sign a class, you're expecting that, you know what, if I sign 12 guys, three or four are probably going to sign. Well, if three or four becomes one or two and all my seniors are coming back, that's an issue. And it, it's just it, nobody intentionally created it, but they need flexibility to deal with that issue. And that's my biggest thing right now from a just a, a rule standpoint is give these guys the flexibility to do it. You don't have to, like if seniors come back, I'm not saying you, you have to put them on the same amount of scholarship that they were on before. That shouldn't be the issue at all, but give them the flexibility to do it. If you want to do it, do it. You want to bring everybody back, bring them all back. Take scholarship limits essentially out for a few years. It doesn't even matter right now. Like this is not about competitive balance. This is about fairness to kids and not creating more conversations to where head coach goes to kid and says, listen, you may be a player in a few years, but the rules dictate that I can't keep you because you're 36 or 37 here or whatever the reason is. Like, take that out of the equation. But to your point of mid-majors, and I think every level, this is a massive trickle-down effect all the way through, which is why there should be a one-time transfer rule right now that where you don't have to sit out. That sucked that they didn't do that. Because um, of any year, I mean, just look at, at what's fair to kids right now and go, hey, some guys are going to get squeezed and they can't do anything about it. There should be a one-time transfer rule this year that allows guys flexibility to go somewhere else. Um, but it's going to go to every level of the college game that we see because, you know, if you're the fringe guy at – major division one program do you become the not even close to fringe guy at the mid-major and if you're that guy like it just keeps going all the way down and and we're gonna see it which i think ultimately is a good thing for our game it makes makes the entire game better yeah i totally agree with you though on just you know that they need to make a decision on this sort of thing because you know some of the guys that we've talked to have already painted the scenario in the fifth round of this draft where college juniors are getting squeezed to take, you know, a hundred thousand dollars or basically, you know, up well then go back next year. Great. You might be a junior again, but if you're a 22 or 23 year old junior, you got 20 rounds worth of players next year that you're competing against too. So some of these guys might kind of be forced to take money and they kind of need to know um, now. So, but my, my last thing, what are your thoughts on the NCAA potentially pushing back the college world series? Are you a fan of that? You know, I am. Um, I wasn't initially, but I've gotten to know Eric Backich really well prior to Michigan's run last year, but over the last few years. And I think the difference with what Eric's proposal is, and it's not just Eric, but I mean, he's the main author of it. And what some have been in the past is it takes away, like the drive of it is not just weather, weather, weather. There's an economic component. There's a academic component. Um, there's a health component. There's a, this should increase attendance across the board. Oh, by the way, 
Like I know it's hot in the summer in Texas, but if you go look at attendance for Round Rock or whoever it is, like people still show up in July. So it's not like when it gets to be hot, nobody goes outside. I think he, what he did was encapsulate all areas of this as, uh, from my standpoint, as best as anybody has done it. Listen, I, I, I can understand why warm weather, if I'm Arizona State, honestly, and I'm only looking out for Arizona State, I look at this and go, no chance. Like, this is not better for us. What we have now is better for us. You all got to come play us for four weeks. Um, and why would we do anything that takes away that advantage? But for the growth of the sport as a whole, I think it's a good idea. And I am a little bit surprised at what the, the support has been across the board because it's not just cold weather schools. In fact, there's some cold weather schools that aren't for it, but it's, it's pretty broad-based what the support is. I, if I had to guess, I'd say probably 65 70% yes. Um, and I think, it, I think it's got a pretty good chance of happening. And I, I give Eric credit for presenting it in a way that is a, I would say, an all-encompassing argument instead of one that's more based on where, where, where you live. Really good stuff, Kyle. Thanks again so much for jumping on the podcast. We'll leave you with this last thought, question, however you want to put it. We are fans of Ed Howard, the local product out of Mount Carmel, and we are just floored by his character. A lot of what these reports are suggesting and people close to the um, the high school in Mount Carmel, uh, as well as the player himself, you know, Ed stands out not only for his talent, but, but also his makeup. And he was one of those players in the Jackie Robertson West teams a few years back in the Little League World Series that made a lot of noise. And, and you're tied a little bit, too, to the Little League World Series in terms of covering that event. What about it is so special to you? And, and if you have any stories that stick out to you, would you be willing to share? Yeah, you know, there's, and we all have these stories this year, but there's two things that broke my heart, I guess, more than anything this year. And one was no College World Series, and the other was no Little League World Series. I've done the College World Series for the last 17 years. I've done the Little League World Series probably, I don't know, 13 or 14 in the last 17 years. And it's, you know, it's another home for two weeks in August. And I've got to see the impact that it has on kids over the course of that time frame. And, and ultimately, um, the cultural impact that it has on kids from all around the world. God knows it's important right now. For what we're going through. I mean, if there was ever a year that you would want the Little League World Series to take place and you would have a team like that and you would have a team from, you know, inner city Chicago or, or whatever it is to be in that situation, it is now. It is now because it, it would so benefit. And what I love about it every year is the kids all stay together. And usually there's an American team and an international team that are side by side. And so when that happens... You're, you're forced just because of proximity to interact with people that you may never interact with again. And these kids see different cultures and lifestyles and, and all the above that they may never see for the rest of their lives. There's the baseball part of the Little League World Series. I love, don't get me wrong, but the, the social and cultural piece of it um, is my favorite. And 
that's the part that hurts this year is if there's ever a year that we could use it the most, it's now. It's just now to, to understand and to be more open to cultural differences between all of us. So I, I, it's an event that I will always cherish and hold close. And it, it breaks my heart that we can't go do it this year. Hopefully we can next year. Um, but for all the right reasons, it's fun, man. I mean, it's for a lot of these kids, for some of them, it's the last time they may play. I mean, after that, you're going into high school and 90-foot bases and, like, real baseball. And this is, you know, the six-foot, two-inch kid that grew faster than everybody else, that throws harder than everybody else, that hits it halfway up the hill. And the four-foot-ten kid that is in the same algebra class and, you know, what they had to fill a team out. It's kind of cool. I mean, we all go through it in, in different things in our life. So I, the event's something I love. I hate missing it. I hate for the kids that they have to miss it. And I, I look forward to getting back there. Very well said, Kyle. Great perspective. Thank you for incorporating that into the show. And thanks so much for taking the time. I know you've been busy, but we really appreciate the insight you were able to bring to us today uh, on the Future Sox podcast. All right, guys. It was good talking to you both. Have a good night. Thanks, Kyle. That's Kyle Peterson of ESPN as well as the SEC Network. You can catch him on ESPN June 10th covering the Major League Baseball Amateur Draft. Also follow him on Twitter at KP underscore Omaha. For James Fox and my and myself, Mike Rankin, as well as Kyle Peterson, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Future Sox podcast. Check us out on anchor.fm for our full library. You can find us as well on Google Podcasts, as well as iTunes. Thanks so much one more time for tuning in. We will talk to you all next time.